Get ready for an incredible journey as we interview Boris Jordan, the chairman and founder of Cureleaf. Wonder why fund managers can't beat the S&P 500? Because they're sheep, and sheep get slaughtered. Down 1.7% here, a loss of 37 points or so. Apple shares are just getting hammered this morning. We're down by between 3 and 4.5% generally across these markets. Let's talk about the speed with which we are watching this market deteriorate. We're red everywhere, essentially, down by 4 5%. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another exciting episode of Pounding the Table. We've got an incredible guest here today, Boris Jordan, the chairman of Pureleaf, the largest MSO globally. Boris is an individual who's not just broken barriers, but forged new paths in international finance, private equity, emerging markets, and was a key player in the early 90s in developing the Russian stock market and a leader in the state asset privatization. He's the co-founder of the esteemed Renaissance Capital Group and an international investment and advisory firm, and the SPK Group, a private equity and advisory entity with impressive investments throughout the United States and Europe. In 2015, Mr. Jordan acquired the majority control of Cureleaf, a move that has since led the company to be the industry leader in the space. So we are very excited to have you on the show here today. Welcome to Pounding the Table, Boris. Great to be here, Avi and Sander and everybody. Looking forward to the conversation. You've got quite a resume, and this is looks like your first foray into the cannabis space. So can you just share some quick background on, and how you got into the space and what attracted you to this market? As you said, I, I started out pretty early in my career working first on Wall Street back in the 1980s um, for an M&A house called Kidder Peabody. And then I um, I went off to go work for a really dynamic entrepreneur, Tony Ryan, who had founded Ryanair and GPA Group in Europe. I worked for him for about three years. I'd say he really instilled in me an entrepreneurial spirit. And then I, I got uh, hired because of my uh, my heritage. I, I, I grew up, I was born and raised in the U.S., but I grew up in a, in a Russian immigrant family. And so I always had a fascination. I studied in college and I had a fascination with the Soviet Union and Russia. And so when it opened up back in 1992, I headed over there with uh, Credit Suisse First Boston. I built their business uh, in that part of the world. It became actually the most profitable business in 1995 for Credit Suisse globally. And then I left and started up about Renaissance Capital. And sort of that was the start of my entrepreneurial career. And from that on, you know, I've been doing my own thing. And in 2000, I sold my interest in Renaissance Capital with my partners and I went off on my own and I started investing. First, I did it through raising money from, you know, the typical types, Harvard Endowment and Soros Asset Management and people like that. I raised the fund. I invested in, in that part of the world. And then I, the fund did well and, and I just started investing from my own account, me and my two partners. And that's what we still do today. We, we, we run basically a, a family office and, and. We concentrate investments in two or three companies usually. So we're very active in the investments that we make. We don't, we're not passive investors. We, we tend to uh, run these companies. At the moment, my responsibility is, is uh, Cureleaf. And that's, that's the one I'm really focused on. And so that's kind of how I came across. I, 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 I had just exited a large investment in Europe. We built a company called Telecity Group which was the largest data center operator in Europe. And we started building that company in 2001 and we exited it between 2010 and 2012. So our whole period is, is usually, that's about the length of our whole period. So between 10 and 12 years is what we usually hold investments for. And so I got into, um, uh, my family wanted to move from London back to the United States. I came back here and uh, started looking around at what was interesting. And, you know, the cannabis space really started to gear up right around that point in time. I got super interested in it. And what I liked about it was it was an industry that could be scalable. That's number one on my priority list because you can spend as much time building a small company as you do building a big one. Yeah. So, you know, I might as well, time is the biggest thing we don't have, right? Anyone can find money for a good project, but time is a real problem. So I focused on building, uh, you know, I looked at that. I liked the fact you could scale it too. I liked the fact that the barriers to entry were very high. So yeah. in other words, you know, not, not everybody could get into this business due to uh, regulatory and other issues. So I like that, which gives me a head start because I'm never the smartest guy in the room, but I like to have some barriers that help me out in, uh, in making my mistakes, uh, which is what we did a lot of. And, um, uh, and, 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 and the last thing I'd say that I liked about the industry is, is that I really felt that there would be global adoption for it. And so 
that was the next thing. And so that was really the, the strategy behind it. I got together with Joe Lasardi, who had opened up a, a, a business in Maine and Massachusetts. And I had a license in New York and a business in New Jersey. Uh, and uh, we got together. You know, I wrote the check and he, he became the CEO. And I said, let's work together in building this company. And so that's what we've been doing ever since that. You know, Joe is still on the board as an uh, executive vice chairman. Um, you know, I'm the executive chairman. So the two of us kind of spearhead uh, the initiative from the board uh, level. And uh, Matt Darren, who uh, ran Grassroots, we bought Grassroots. He ran Grassroots. We would like to, he stepped in as CDO a year ago. So the three of us really work as a team uh, in uh, building the company. Real quick, before we get into a lot more questions too, there's this whole concept of an MSO and, you know, we're familiar with it within the cannabis space, like understanding what that is and what is Cureleaf, just for those who are unfamiliar, what are they actually doing? Are they retail shops? Are they distributors? If you could give a little bit more background. So, so, those. You know, this, this is an industry, which unlike any other industry that I've at least experienced and listen, I've invested in Africa, Russia. I've invested in some pretty exotic places. And this, this is as exotic as it is. You know, George Soros once told me, I, I used to run money for him back in the early days. And one of the things he told me, he goes, Boris, uh, what do you think the largest emerging market in the world is? And of course, I said, you know, Brazil, Russia, you know, Thailand. I started going through all this. And he said, no, it's the United States. It's the only place in the world where companies can, you know, grow at 25, 30% every year. And you have a great capital market. You've got a legal system that protects your rights and all these things. So, you know, I, I would say that, that, you know, this, this industry in the U S because of the size of our consumer products market really got me excited. And, and, but the problem is that unlike any business that I've ever seen, you know, we have rules, uh, in cannabis that, that really restrict, um, good capital allocation, um, and that is that we have to be, the reason we're called MSOs, multi-state operators, is because we can't be called, you know, you know, we can't, we're not a normal company in that we have to silo our businesses in each single state. And so we have to build the full vertical in each single state. We own, the we, we grow our product, we process our product, we manufacture, you know, our formulated products, and then we have to distribute it. So we do everything, jack of all trades hopefully master of all, but it's difficult to do that. Um, but yeah, so we, that's why we're called multi-state operators. We have to operate in a vertical platform in each single state. So, you know, it's, a, it, it's very capital inefficient at the moment. Unlike Europe, where Cureleaf is the only U.S. player operating in the European market, that's completely different. That is much more along traditional business lines. We don't have, you know, a 280 tax burden on us. We, we, can, we can move product between countries. We can manufacture, grow, and process all in one location and then distribute throughout the continent. So the European operation for Cureleaf is much more efficient from a capital usage perspective and, and a cost perspective than what we have in the United States due to the regulatory environment. And that's why we're called MSOs. And I think we're all waiting for the day that we're no longer called MSOs and we're just normal companies that can operate cross-border in our country and uh, distribute product and manufacture product and, and hopefully not have to grow the product and let the farmers grow the product that we can just be good CPG players. Yeah. I mean, Boris, you touched on a lot, like a lot of a lot there. And for most of our listeners, you know, retail investors that don't know much about cannabis specifically. And whenever I'm talking with investors about it, it's always like, wait, what? It doesn't, it's not truly scalable. How do you manage that? Um, and I want to dig a little deeper in something that you talked about that I loved about cannabis, which is you basically have a defensible moat around your business and it's high barriers to entry versus like the example in Europe where there is true scalability. As we're taking a look at the future of cannabis policy and interstate trade, where there's been bills passed now in California, Washington, and, and Oregon, is the friction for interstate trade, doesn't that actually advantage Cureleaf right now? from other competition or, or how do you feel about that? I would argue it did advantage us. I, I'd say that the problem now is that the advantage in my opinion has turned into a disadvantage. And the reason being twofold, one is the 280 tax hit, right? So, so, you know, as you get bigger, you're spending more and you can't write off your expenses. So our effective tax rate is over 70%. A lot of players cheat 
and don't pay all their tax. We pay all our tax, right? The we have a we have everybody in the world's focused on curls, right? Regulators, the IRS, everybody. So we have to be above and beyond any kind of rule. We have to really focus on meeting all the all the requirements, all the rules, pay our taxes. So I would say that it's become a disadvantage because the capital market is largely shut down. Cost of capital is shot through the roof, not only because of cannabis, I would say it's also macro related, right? So there's, you know, obviously interest rate environment, et cetera, has really, the cost of capital has just gone up. We already had a higher cost of capital in traditional businesses. Now we have even more so. I mean, the average cannabis company today, even if it could get a loan, is unlike, unless it's fully secured by real estate, you're borrowing at 13, 15, 18%, right? Even, high, even, high, even higher. Right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, the base I'm, of purely our average cost of capital is somewhere probably yeah. around eight and a half percent. But that's because we recapped and, 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 and did all that before the current crisis, not because we're super smart, but because just our timing was such that our loans were coming due and we had to refinance. And so we refinanced our balance sheet right before the interest rate hike started at, you know, eight percent. And so because of that, our average cost of capital is a little bit lower than than our competition. And at the moment, we feel pretty good that we don't need to raise capital. So we're not in that same position. But um, would I like to raise capital to grow faster? I would. But it's just very prohibitive right now. And so you've had a really big reduction in equity value in these companies, right? I mean, Cureleaf was a $12, $13 billion company. We're now at $2.5 billion, right? So you've had a substantial decline in, in value. So doing equity raises at this level is very dilutive for those investors that invested at higher levels. And we, we really look after our shareholders. We try not to hurt them. So we're trying not to dilute them unless we really have something good to do with that capital. So I would say that the moat that we had, Xander, was really good in the early stages. At this point in time, I'd like to see it normalize because that will bring down our cost of capital, get rid of the capricious. I mean, Curly pays $150 million a year in taxes over and above our normal federal tax rate. Wow. So we're burning, we're basically working for the government. We basically, purely works for the U.S. government, right? We take, well, can we you say, can you say a little bit more that's left over, we pay to the government. Can you, can you say a little more? Because I think that it, it you, it's a, very important point about what differentiates Curely from a lot of the other MSOs and traded names. When you said Curely pays their taxes, and it came out uh, top, basically the top three, four pay their taxes. Some a little slower, some a little faster, but I'd say the top, you know, the the Curely, GTI, Verano, Truly are probably the better payers of taxes. You know, we all have different strategies in how we pay, but everybody pays. I would say if you go down the line, you st start to, it starts to get a little dicey. And that's because, and that is because just so for the listeners, the penalty, the federal penalty for non-payment of taxes is lower than the mid-market lender debt of 15, 18 and full disclosure, oh, yeah. I'm, on, I'm on the board of Altmore Capital. I'm on their LPAC. So I see loan origination from that standpoint. And so the fees for paying for non-payment of taxes is much lower than mid-market lenders. And so operators are treating that as basically a low interest, their tax obligation as a low interest loan from the federal yeah, government. And before, I think that's a dicey penalties, game. It's about 9% after penalties, it's around yeah. 12%. So, you know, but then you, you legally, you can only extend that out about 18 months. Anything after that really start, you really start to get into some dangerous territory. So up to 18 months, U.S. government basically allows you to extend the payments as long as you pay the penalties. But it's starting, like for a company like Cureleaf, that starts getting very expensive, right? Because our average cost of capital is much lower, at least right now. Um, uh, but for other players, you're right. It's, it makes sense for them to do it. They can do it legally. And frankly, if I was in their position, I'd probably be doing the same thing um, because you're allowed to. But the problem is that creates a slight pyramid skill over time, right? So because you're like, okay, we won't pay for 12 months and we won't pay for you know 16 months and we won't pay for 18 months. And then all of a sudden you're, your, 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 your tax payments are starting to accumulate. So you really have to watch that carefully because if you don't, these companies will become zombie companies, right? The ones that aren't paying their taxes. I live in New York and I see all of these little shops popping up, you know, and then there's the ones that have the ID checks out that are the legal ones that feel like they're legal, but then there's all these like little pop-up shops. So is that like still the situation where you guys obviously have the number one legal and doing things the right way here, but 
in terms of some of these pop-up shops and the non-legal entities. Yeah, I mean, so that's, that's what we compete against. Um, yeah. We compete against, you know, a lot of these illicit um, stores. Now, only two states really have this problem to this extent, and that's California and New York. You know, yeah. the two states that are really for law and order. So, um, uh, um, so uh, they're the ones that really have this problem. But I, I, I would argue, though, that what we've seen when it comes to take New York and California out of the picture, other states, as the legal companies enter the market, we do gain share against the illicit drug dealers because people still want to get safe, tested products. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of crazy stuff being sold out there. And especially if you start getting into formulated product, right. You know, whether it's mints or edibles or, or vapes and stuff like that. I mean, you have to literally be insane. That's the one thing I will tell them. And I'm not just being self-serving because I run a regulated business, but mm-hmm. we Cure Leaf has gone out and we've tested the stuff that's being sold on New York shelves. And it's literally poison. I mean, the levels of pesticides and chemicals that are going into there. It's and, and you know we had a we had a scare three years ago. If you remember on the vape crisis, yeah. and and with the CDC got involved, and a hundred percent of the product that caused the deaths was all illicit product. None of the regulated companies we all had our product. Of course, CureLeaf was number one on the list. You know everybody bought our select brand and, and CureLeaf brand to test it because everybody was hoping to find something. And you know we had absolutely clean product because that's what we do. We, we sell a regulated product. Whereas all the unregulated shops and uh, products were had vitamin E, I, it had so many things in it that were so dangerous for you that you have to be very careful. And so, you know, I think that we tend to win over time um, as long as the states regulate and don't allow these illicit shops. Now, the only two states I know of where there's a mass amount of illicit shops is, is New York and California. And yeah. New York at the moment is literally a disaster because, you know, the state has, for social justice reasons, has decided not to let the existing medical players into the market. They're stalling our entry into the market and they're trying to charge us egregious amounts of money to get into the market where they're not charging everybody else. As everyone knows, we filed numerous lawsuits against the state on mm-hmm. the subject and, and, and we'll win because they're violating their own rules um, uh, that they wrote, their own laws that they've written. Um, but they don't care. They openly say, you know, we're all about just social justice and we don't want any of you guys inside the market. But because of that, the market, one, isn't developing and two, they've allowed the illicit market to run crazy in New York. And it hasn't really been there. They're attempting to um, shut down some of these shops, but it's basically whack-a-mole, right? No, they're not. I, I literally, I live and I walk on main streets and they're not hiding. It's like cannabis shop with flashing lights. It's it's pretty wild that they're able to do that. It sounds like it's it's kind of a, becoming a potential health hazard if you know there's not checkpoints to verify it's a legitimate company. Because I've seen some companies that will you like scratch it off and you go to their website. Is that enough verification to show that it's a real product? No, I listen. You can't get real product now. Some of these shops do fly out to California and buy from these uh, distros out there and try to bring it over here as le- as legal product, but. You, you can't, I would say that's 2% of the product that you're finding on the, the shelves. Most of the product is illegally manufactured in people's basements and stuff like that. I mean, it's scary stuff. It's mm-hmm. scary, scary stuff. And the other thing is, listen, I've had a family member that passed away from cannabis smoking uh, with fentanyl. Um, and, and it was laced with a little bit of fentanyl. And it was a young kid. He's 19 years old, a, a member of our family. And he passed away from it. So I am a, you know, I am come from a family that suffered from, from this illicit market. I am, you know, I adamantly open about the fact, do not touch cannabis that's sold illicitly, either flour. Otherwise you think it's safe, but there's a lot of people out there that are doing crazy stuff right now to try and get a bigger high. They're putting stuff on this stuff, on these plants. And even in flour, that's very, very dangerous. Um, whereas regulated product, no one's ever died in cannabis from regulated product. No one's ever overdosed on regulated product. I mean, you, can, you can't say that about alcohol. You can't say that about illicit. You can't say that about Coke or all, all these other drugs. Cannabis is incredibly safe as long as it's regulated and tested. I want to talk more about the macro news that just hit a couple weeks ago, specifically MasterCard blocking debit card transactions in the cannabis industry. So I was wondering, um, I come from corporate strategy, so 
this happened in my industry, there's definitely going to be fire drills right away. How is Kiralee planning to adapt to these changes? Is this going to affect making more transactions, like more ATMs in the stores? So it's going to be more cash-based transactions going forward or potentially alternative avenues such as Bitcoin or something in the crypto space? So the first thing I'll tell you is, is that Visa and MasterCard as a company actually are lobbying for safe banking in Washington. So they, they want the regulation to go through, obviously. So they didn't do this because they somehow don't like the industry. They did it for a different reason. A lot of illicit users, illicit shops and illicit businesses were using MasterCard. Uh, and so that was what they were concerned about. They weren't concerned about companies like CuroLeaf or, or others. That wasn't their concern. Their concern was the illicit market. And that is money laundering, right? So that's a real, real problem for them. And so that's why they cracked down on this. Now, the irony is, is that CuroLeaf and our network of, of of retail stores, which is, you know, 160 or some odd retail stores, we didn't use pin debit, except for maybe one or two stores where we were testing pin debit to see whether we wanted to use it. We largely use either ATMs or we use other payment companies that were not using uh, pin debit as a, as a way to debit from uh, your accounts. And so we haven't had any disruption in this particular situation. Um, uh, other companies have that used, I mean, Dutchie, which is, I'm actually, for transparency purposes, I'm also an investor and it's the largest POS. It's kind of the POS system for restaurants. Toast? Toast. Yeah, Toast. So, yeah. you know, the founder, one of the founders of Toast is actually the guy that's the CEO of, of Dutchie. And, and Dutchie is the, the toast for the cannabis sector. And just to be transparent, I am an investor uh, in that company from my family office. And they were using Pendebit for their payment network. And so they're having now to switch over to other payment mechanisms for, for their business. But Cureleaf, um, which does use Dutchie, we never really signed up for their pin debit uh, payment system. And so we weren't affected by the current uh, slowdown in, in with MasterCard shutting down their services for cannabis businesses. All of the cannabis stocks just like dipped due to potential like forecasting on like free cash flow get affected or anything like that. So it's good to hear that Cureleaf won't really feel that impact. I have another question. So Regarding uh, like Leaf has like, they just recently exited like, California, Colorado, and Oregon due to like the economics in those states. Can you provide more details on how that's going to start impacting future growth opportunities from Leaf in U.S.? Listen, we decided that, so we were earlier in the cycle in our investment in those states. And given what's happened in the last two years with lack of federal reform on cannabis, um, we made a decision that to the profitability in those states was going to cost a tremendous amount of capital and investment, plus the profitability levels in those states, even when we got to them, would be substantially lower uh, than other states that we operated. And so we made a decision that given a fact that we didn't want to raise and dilute, we'd rather focus on those markets and expand in those markets where we were earning a decent return on capital. And so we decided to shut those down. Um, they were, as I said, much later in the investment cycle than a lot of our East Coast markets, uh, even Midwest markets. And so it wasn't as painful to do it. I wanted to be in those markets because I think you got to be in California, big market, right? You want your brands there. But we made a decision that the returns, I mean, I'll give you the idea that, you know, even our pro forma return, you know, gross margin is somewhere between, call it, you know, depending on the time frame, is somewhere between 45 and 50%. And our gross margin in California, Colorado, and Oregon was, you know, down at like 20%. So, you know, so compared to all the other states, we just made a, a, a decision. Now, had we had federal banking regulation at cost of capital not gone up, we probably would have stayed in those markets because they're good growth markets and we think they're going to be all right. Um, now, you'll have some markets that have higher returns, some markets that have lower returns. But as long as your overall, you know, margins are good, you know, we would have liked to. And they provide scale because they're a large market. But there's two things. They have bad enforcement. Um, they were oh, they have no restrictions on licenses and their returns because that were really low. So we made a decision that it was a hard decision uh, to shut those down and take the hit, uh, you know, last year on our on our uh, balance sheet with a write off of I think it was two hundred thirty million dollars in investments in those markets and then move on and focus on those markets that are bringing in good returns. And so, um, you know, um, we're happy that we made that decision in hindsight. Uh, given what we've seen this year with, uh, you know, price compression in the first six months of this year. 
um, we think that was a, a right decision and where cost of capital is. Going I'm pretty back. impressed with how Cureleaf has been kind of getting ahead of the curve on, on the finance front. I would say with MSOs, you do in every cannabis business, they do something different really, really well. And I think on the financial front and financial diligence, Cureleaf does things very, very well. And the shift, and you might disagree with this, agree with this. I'd be curious your take, but there is a, and this is broader than just the cannabis industry, but we've come out of the land grab mode where you have to be everywhere because, and that is why you have a store in North Dakota, to we need to actually be running profitable businesses. And it's more about EBITDA stabilization or EBITDA growth. And I feel like Cureleaf has always been at the vanguard of that in the cannabis industry. Um, what do, you, do you agree with that about that shift in focus and your growth strategy? How should investors understand that when they see you divest from these types of markets? How do they yeah, understand so I, that? I, listen, on the one hand, we did divest in those markets. On the other hand, Cureleaf runs a slightly different strategy than our competitors. I would call it basically Verano, GTI, and truly. They have really decided to entrench themselves only in the U.S. and only in a limited amount of states. And one could argue that short during this current crisis, there's slightly better margin results than Cureleaf because of that. We went a little bit wider and we went international. However, so I therefore had to make the retrenchment decision on the West Coast. Now, frankly, almost everyone has made that decision after Cureleaf is also doing it. Truly, everybody seems to be shutting down those operations. But I have not walked away from growth as a strategy. So you will see, I think, over the next six to 12 months, you will see that my competitors, for the most part, have stayed in their modes and they haven't moved out. Their focus is strictly on cash flow. I would say that we differ mainly because of our European. So in the US, we've done the same. We were trenched out of those three markets and we're focusing on those markets that are bring good results. And that's where we're sticking. But we are investing heavily into the European operations. I mean, just think about what's about to happen January 1st. January 1st, Germany's going Germany's to move to an adult use, I'm sorry, a, a medical light model. They're going to move into a model that's very similar to Florida, okay? And it's got a huge amount of similarities. The only difference is Florida's 20 million people and Germany's 82 million. And Florida is a $3 billion market and Germany right now is a 200 million euro market going to what I think is going to be over three to five years to a $12 billion market. And we have been very successful in gaining a 23% share in Germany over the last three years since we've gone into the European market. We focus only on two real markets in Europe right now, which is the UK and Germany. Those are the two best markets and also the two most populous markets and the two that have flaws. And so we have not used the US strategy in Europe where we went everywhere. We are very focused on only two markets in Europe. Poland, because Poland is adopting Germany's rules and that's a 60 million population market. So we're interested in Poland as well. But Germany is going to be a huge launch here in January. And so what you're going to see next year and, and, and this has happened twice before, like purely if we were in that, like we all started at the same time, Cresco, GTI, Verona, all of us started at the same time. And, and then Cureleaf made a leap forward and we produced about $400 million more revenue than our competitors. In some cases, you know, five or 600, but say our second biggest being, you know, GTI and Cureleaf, you're going to see that pretty flat this year and, and maintain that this ourselves because it wasn't huge growth catalyst this year, but going into next year, you're going to see a. Uh, a fun, just step function growth for Cureleaf because none of them need that investment in Europe. And that takes three years to get registered and approved in Europe because you have to product every strain. It's a very tedious process, which is why we did it three years ago. And now you're going to see that step function growth for Cureleaf, right? Cureleaf should start to see $100 million type revenues in Germany starting next year, moving into obviously 24, 25, and 26. And then on the back of that, then if we come back to the U.S., you know, Pennsylvania, Florida, these are markets that are Ohio are likely to go with use over the next two, three years. So what's really interesting is first we're going to get our growth out of Europe, and if we come back to the U.S., prominent positions in those markets, we'll start to capture the growth there. So I've always said that cannabis is not linear. It's very step function because of the way the regulatory environment works. So you're going to have years like this year where you're going to be largely flat to even some cases, companies might be slightly down. And then you're going to get years where 
we're going to return to 30% type of periods, you know, over a couple of years. And, and that's what you're going to see in, in the sector come over the next three, four years, in my opinion. So it's not going to even, and not all players are going to be the same. Right now, everybody's the same, largely. I think you know, as we go into next year, there will start differentiation between the players. So you and, can... uh, and I'm not as focused. I know people have probably penalize me. I'm not as focused on short-term profitability as some of my players are, because I think we're still very early cycle. And right now, I want to be investing. But you just have to be smart about where you put your money, right? California was the wrong place to invest right now. Germany, right place to invest right now. That's how I look at it. As investors, you're always looking six months, a year further along the road, obviously. And so you mentioned Florida and, and talking about, you know, the UK, Germany. How, how are you guys going about looking at what to go to next? Like states, different countries. How close are you guys working? Are you watching the government? Who's going to be in power? We have an election year coming up. You know, that could change dynamics as well. So I think a lot of our listeners are just curious how companies in general, and, and speaking with you over at CureLeaf, every company is focused on that right now. And we all look, so for instance, like, let's use Florida as an example. Uh, we're going to find out here over the next week uh, whether, you know, when the Supreme Court will take up the issue of legalization um, in, in Florida. So um, uh, Florida, a lot of money was spent by TrueLeaf to try to get this on the ballot for uh, 24 the Supreme Court will opine on this over the next month or so. We'll probably hear, I think, by late October, early November, as to whether they're going to allow this to go to the ballot. If it goes to the ballot, it's basically guaranteed to pass. There's a 60% threshold. It's polling at like 72% in Florida. So we're pretty confident that we'll get adult use. And then, and obviously DeSantis and team are fighting against it because they're very concerned. Once you put an issue like, like cannabis on the ballot in 24, that brings a, a lot of the more liberal vote out to vote. Uh, mm. And they're concerned about, you know, presidential elections and et cetera, et cetera, at 24. So there is definitely resistance from DeSantis, I think largely political rather than some kind of fundamental view on cannabis. Um, uh, I think politically, him and his team are worried about cannabis getting on the ballot. But if that goes through, right, that means that probably that's November of 24, probably by the end of 25, you have adult use rules and written, right? And the two top players in that market are CureLeaf and TrueLeaf. So, you know, we're definitely behind TrueLeaf. They, they're the they're a Florida-based company. They've been for a lot, much longer period of time. But, you know, we, we do, we have a very substantial share in that market and we would benefit. Now, that would be a tripling, in our opinion, of that market because of the tourist traffic that comes in. Everybody says, oh, well, it's a very penetrated medical market. Yes, but no one's accounting for the amount of tourists that, that can't even participate in the rec market in the mm -hmm. market because it's medical today. So I, I think that you'd see a tripling of the Florida market from, you know, $3 billion to, you know, $9 billion probably in pretty short order. So that would be very beneficial. That's a big catalyst. And we're all looking at that. We're all focused on that. We're also focused on Pennsylvania and Ohio. Ohio just looks like it's going to be on the ballot this November. Ohio is a very popular state. That goes adult use probably if, if it gets approved sometime at the end of 25, sorry, end of 24. That's another big catalyst for all of us that are operating in that market, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, likewise for Pennsylvania, very big market for all the top players. Um, if that goes adult use, which we think it will in some time in 25, probably, um, that's another catalyst. So I, I see 25, 26, and 27 as big growth catalysts in the U.S. for all the companies. And then I see 24, 25, 26 as a major growth catalyst for CuroLeap with Euro. And I do think, by the way, that some of our competitors will follow in Europe as the cost of capital comes down and they're able to raise, they will follow to Europe. But right now we're alone there. It's, I mean, we have a, almost a 50% share in the UK and a 23% share in Germany. And we're looking to make more acquisitions in Germany to increase that share as we go into this, you know, for this new period in January of uh, next year. So I, I'm all in all, this is, I'm not going to deny that the last year and a half has been very tough for the cannabis industry both from a macro and regulatory perspective. And it has been very, very hard work, basically, to keep the businesses running. Um, but we've all right-sized the businesses. We've shut down what was inefficient, laid off a lot of people. Purely had 6,400 employees. We're down to 4,400. We cut expenses uh, uh, over the last six months out of our SG&A. That's just an enormous number, right? So, you know, we've had to do that to continue to operate in a, a more difficult market. But the good news on the horizon is, 
that the smaller players are under pressure, shutting down. Some are shutting down. A lot of private players are shutting down. Even some of the big players. I mean, Truly exited Nevada and Massachusetts, right? Truly exited California, um, Oregon, and Colorado. So what's happening in places like Nevada, Massachusetts, which purely sees as strategic markets, once players start to exit, we're starting to see green shoots and increase in prices. So that's really good for us. So I think that this initial overinvestment phase is coming to an end. We're now going to have a trough for about 12 to 18 months. Even if, if, even if we get regulation, it's going to take a while for people, to, you know, balance sheets to come back and raise money. I don't think there's new investment for some period of time. And that means that that's going to weed out the weaker players and that's going to play into the stronger players. And then obviously consolidation is the next issue, right? We're a little bit constrained by rules, but mm-hmm. for the most part, there's a lot of places we can still buy us. I wanted to follow up on is about the public markets and Curaleaf's growth and, and for retail investors that want to share in Curaleaf's success and invest in Curaleaf earlier in July, Terrasen, I mean, I woke up and looked at Jason Wilde's Twitter and there you have Terrasen uplisting on the Toronto Exchange. Um, and there is a rich history of cannabis companies accessing Canadian markets and a rich history of the Canadian-based operators who came into the United States when I entered the industry in 2018, 2019. It was all Canadian operators that um, the best way it was put to me was they're great in boardrooms with ideas and whiteboards and button downs tucked into nice pairs of wool pants. But when a generator goes down, they don't know what the hell to do. And now we have Terrasend uplisting on the Toronto Exchange, and that has basically dominated cannabis finance news for the last few weeks. How do you think we should understand this? How's Cureleaf looking at this, uh, potentially moving from the OTC to uplisting? Is this even on your guys' uh, radar right now? So we, we were the actual pioneers of that, uh, I'll be honest with you. So even before Terrasend looked at it, we've been in discussions with the TSX to uplist. And uh, Cureleaf has made the decision to make that application, and we will be doing that over the next month or so. Uh, we've actually issued uh, a, a, a statement recently to that effect because we had to do it for regulatory purposes. We wanted to see, you know, how Terrasend works and all that. They're a smaller company. We sort of wanted to see them do it. For us, it's a bigger deal to do that than it is for a smaller business because we have a lot more states to get approvals in. We have creditors to get approvals with, shareholder. You know, it, it's a, a bit of a process. And so we're, we're pretty pleased with two things. And this is what drove our decision to do it, that the, even with, without safe banking, the large U.S. custodians have said they will custody and they will trade in U.S. MSOs if they're, tra- if they're traded on the TSI. And, and that's a game changer because if you understand the problem in this industry today has been a lack of institutional capital. Um, when Curly went public, in 2018, 96% of my IPO, which is $400 million, was dominated by the likes of BlackRock, Fidelity, you know, large institutional debt. Less than 4% of the IPO was retail. If you look at my capex corp, my, my capital structure now, and it's besides me and my partner who own about 53%, you know, through various vehicles, everything, every, everybody else is retail. There is no institutional money left in the sector. Nothing. I mean, two, three percent. And, you know, a lot of what's called institutional are family offices with 50 million or $100 million. So we're not talking about large scale, more only, or even large scale hedge funds that are investors. There's a, there's a few hedge funds that have gotten into the sector, but they represent a less than 1% of the, of the holdings in the sector. And so, and now the real reason for that has been first and foremost custody. There's been no custody available, right? You can't. I mean, if you're a big hedge fund or if you're a big loan holder, you're not going to custody at some um, little broker that's got, you know, $10 million of capital. You're just not going to do it, right? It's just too risky. So that's been issue number one was custody. That gets resolved with uplisting. So Morgan Stanley and Bank of New York have said they will trade in securities traded on the DSX. That's an absolute game changer. In September, a month before we're looking to go public on the TSX, we're going to be on the road talking to all the big investors saying, hey, guys, remember us from 2018? We're back and now you can custody shares. You know, there's a way to do it. You can trade on the TSX with us. We think that's going to be a major game changer for attract. Now, it's not going to happen overnight. We're going to have to go out there, sell the story, tell everybody about it. They're going to have to go to their credit committees, their risk management, you know, and, and redo it. So it's not like a, 
let's not expect this enormous rally the day we go, you know, what you call it. Will, it will be a lot of hard work. But the fact is now we can at least do it. We can build an IR department, a proper IR department that talks to, you know, it's regular institutional investors and not the little mom and pop. Not that I'm against the mom and pop. They've been supporting us to date. But we really need to anchor our cap structure with some proper investment uh, for institutional players. So I'm very hopeful of that. So the answer, Xander, is we are going to do it. We, we were down the road a long way. We wanted to see whether or not custody, because if custody didn't happen, we weren't going to do it. And the only way you could have that happen, they weren't prepared to give you an answer. So, so in many ways, Tarasen made a very risky decision. I don't think it would have been a worse decision for them because they're a small company, and I don't think, but, but they took a decision to go on the PSX and only find out later whether the big operators were prepared to custody them. And the answer was yes. And the minute I heard that, I said, okay, let's hit the go button for Carolyn. And not everybody can do it, though, because the TSX is requiring a substantial outside of U.S. presence in your, cap, in your business to go public on the TSX. And there is no one except purely for the substantial international presence in the U.S. today. Now, I suspect you might get some people running. You know, there's been rumors about a deal with Kronos. Or you might get some mergers between Canadians and U.S. companies just for that reason, especially if we don't get safe banking. Mm-hmm. We don't get safe banking. I think you're going to see an acceleration of deals between Canadians because U.S. companies are starved for capital. They have good businesses, but they need capital to grow and they can't get it because of the cost, because of the prohibitive cost right now. If they go on the TSX, it, the community of investors that can invest is going to grow dramatically. That's an interesting point about Kronos because they're in basically in any M&A conversation in a boardroom, you have to talk about Kronos because they're sitting on something like $800 million US in dry powder. If you go on their LinkedIn, they have 200 plus employees. And if you search for their operations, um, they barely even have a lemonade stand up and running. And so it's like, okay, what are you guys waiting for? And perhaps it is that about um, a company. Up they burnt, if you think about it, they burnt a billion dollars in like two and a half, three years, and they have no business. Yeah. Like, I, I just don't get it. Like, yeah, I mean, barely I, a lemonade stand. That's it. I can tell you, if that was my money, I'd be climbing walls right now. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm maybe the, after, after Ultra, I may be the largest investor in the cannabis world. With the amount of money I've committed to Cure Leaf and, and some of the other investments. And I can tell you that, you know, I'm pretty unhappy now as it is. Um, but if I went snap and I've burned through a billion dollars of capital or consolidated brands, uh, you know, Apple burned through $5 billion, I'd be going crazy. But the, the mistake was they invested in their own businesses. They, they invested where they thought they could legally invest, but they didn't invest where there were actual businesses to invest in. That was the issue. What was it like, like the initial raising? Because cannabis, you know, and the narrative is shifting for sure. When you think about cannabis, you, you think about, you know, uh, Jay and Silent Bob or like, you know, people in tie-dye shirts. The narrative is now shifting where it's guys in, in suits and ties that are walking in and these are turning this tide of like a real investment opportunity. And just hearing you talk about this and seeing the social shift in narrative, like the NBA, I think, took it off the list. I saw you guys did a tweet about that. Uh, I think NFL is doing something as well. And like, as you're seeing more and more, even in New York, the you're seeing it on the street, even if it's legal or not. And so in people's heads, that narrative is shifting. Like, how do you see that social pressure on the government to like expedite some of these laws or, or to push these up? Has that been seen so far? Bob, I got to tell you something. You bring up a very interesting subject. So I've, you know, I've always, I've worked on Capitol Hill when I got out of college. I was, uh, I'm an incredible patriot. But the one thing I realized through cannabis is our legislators don't give a flying f- about what the population thinks. Excuse yeah. my expression, Tracy, <laughs> and everybody else. But they really don't. And the reason that I use that language is because that's just true. They right. don't care what we think. 90% of the U.S. population wants medical cannabis. 74% of the population wants rec- access to recreational cannabis. And our legislators don't care don't care. They're funded by um, hard liquor companies and pharmaceutical companies that are against it. They pay for their campaigns. The pharmaceutical industry is scared to death of cannabis. Scared to death because it will kill their pain drugs. It will kill the sleep market. It will kill the anxiety drugs that they're selling to people and they won't control it. And so they are 
deathly worried about the cannabis industry and they spend literally billions of dollars to try and stop this industry from getting legalized. And that's the up, that's the problem. And unfortunately, you know, money talks, bullshit walks in this country. That's one thing I do like about the U S but the problem with that is, is that our legislators are bought by these companies and they don't care what the people think. I mean, the fact that Sherrod Brown, you know, the, the is running right now and, and he's the head of the banking committee, he's running for office in a state that's about to go adult use. He's a Democrat and he can't get his head around pushing through safe banking through his committee is to me beyond me. Like he's worried about he's running one percentage point above the Republican candidate and he's a long term member of it. And, and why is he not embracing cannabis and moving forward? Hard? Why is he hedging? I don't understand it. His state is about to go adult. You're about to vote on a referendum and pass. Over 50% of the population is going to say, we want cannabis rules. Why is he? And he's a Democrat. Why is he going against? It's not, it's not just he can't push it through his own committee, Boris. And by, by the way, I used to work in federal lobbying and federal affairs for APAC and U.S. Middle East issues and ran political campaigns. So that's how I enter the cannabis industry as a policy and regulatory and political expert. And I used to cover Ohio a little bit for APAC. And with Sherrod Brown, I mean, you're giving him too much credit. He killed safe banking in the Senate. It passed the House seven or eight times. And then he, Chuck Schumer, and Cory Booker killed it because it was not progressive enough. I mean, it's worse than just he's not being an advocate. It's he literally has killed safe banking two or three times with his own hands. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I just, to me, it's it's beyond me now. We, we all know that drug companies are biggest funders. We know they gained a lot of traction with Democrats during COVID. Historically, they've been largely a Republican funder, right? But, you know, during COVID um, and under Obama, I mean, Obama really shifted the game in, with the pharmaceuticals. Because of Obamacare, he needed to raise money to push Obamacare through. And the only place he could get it was the pharmaceutical industry. And so he went to the pharmaceutical industry, and that's when the pharma companies really took put their claws into into the Democratic Party. I mean, historically, the Democratic Party and pharma did not get along, right? Democrats were always against pharma, always about lowering the cost of drugs and everything. But with with Obamacare, that changed um, because they funded, you know, the campaign on Obamacare. Mm-hmm. So why, why then, Boris, this is kind of an out-of-the-box idea, but the fact, the simple truth is, is the United States Congress and its history has never not once ever passed a pro-cannabis piece of legislation. And yet I see a lot of good money after bad being used for these kind of $10,000, $20,000 fundraisers for candidates for Congress. Certain younger members of Congress, let's call them, are being paraded around our conferences and told us that, you know, they're a second term member of Congress or first, but they're our savior. Looking at the game board, if no actual positive cannabis legislation has come out of Congress, perhaps our industry, our movement's highest leverage point is in the executive branch. And the simple truth is, is tomorrow, if the executive wanted to, they could remove cannabis from the federal schedule. Um, and that solves basically all of our problems. Uh, what do you think about reorienting our precious resources and energy from congressional fundraising, which for the reasons you said, it's just there aren't good. It's just burning money. And I like Nancy Mace. I like Dean. I like like they're nice people. I like Brian Mass, um, but they're not going to move the dial on our issue. What about reorienting our attention to the presidential and the executive office? Well, I mean, let's be honest, right? Biden is anti-cannabis and you're not going to change that. Everybody um, should know that he's been that way his whole life. Trump, anti-cannabis, anti-alcohol, anti-everything, right? You know, he's even worse. But those are our two frontrunners. And, you know, and, and DeSantis is flip-flop, right? He was, he was neutral and now he's gone negative because he's running for president. So, I, I mean, that's the one thing that's always, I, I don't understand, like, who, it, it can only be money that's telling them this. Because if they look at the polling, the polling shows this is probably the biggest, one of the biggest bipartisan issues in the country. Both Republicans and Democrats want to legalize Canada. Mm-hmm. So, it can only be money that's making people like DeSantis flip-flop. I, I think Trump and Biden have different reasons, right? Trump had his brother with alcohol and drug problems, so he never used and was always against it. Biden, because of his son, is, and has been historically signed up for the last 40 years to the anti-drug war, right? So I get it. Those two guys come from a different era. They have their reasons for why they are. But what the hell is with DeSantis, right? I mean, it, it could only be money. 
right? And and you know, it's I think that that's what it's got to be. I mean, again, I'm not I don't want to make a point on on I'm not a politician, but we saw that with DeSantis on the Ukraine war, right? He comes out and he writes this whole memorandum saying I'm against all the money we're spending on overseas wars, including Ukraine. I want to focus on the U.S. Five days later, he flips his position, and what happened was the money came to him and said, "What are you doing? You know, this is we're making money on this." So the problem is, it's always money. Right, you have to follow the money in these cases, and in this case, we have a problem. We have the pharmaceutical industry does not want to see cannabis legalized. So that's why, Vander, I'm of the opinion that we have to keep spending, and we have because money wins in the United States. So we have to keep the pressure on these politicians through lobbying, both in Congress, but also through the executive branch. I do think, by the way, that they're serious about this review of rescheduling cannabis. The problem we have, and I probably know more about this than I should be talking about, but the problem we have is that I'm concerned that they're going to take the easy route, make the schedule two instead of schedule three. What does that mean for, for those that may not know? So schedule two means, so schedule three automatically takes it off of, of 280. So that basically is a game changer, right? We all become hugely cash flow positive overnight. Right. Mm-hmm. Because these businesses are good businesses. It's good for the consumer to get rid of that because it'll bring down prices of cannabis. And it's good for the companies because we can efficiently allocate capital. So mm-hmm. we become like any other company in the U.S. Schedule two is not a, it's, it, it's bad because, for instance, fentanyl is used, as we all know, in surgery, right? When you're, when you're putting someone, when you're trying to make sure that somebody doesn't feel the, I'm losing my Anesthesiologist. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and, and anesthesia, right? Anesthesia so is a general anesthesia. Fentanyl is used in anesthesia, right, in the United States, at a very small dose, but it's used. So, obviously, the company, the chemical, the, the the pharmaceutical companies that are selling that fentanyl to in those drugs, they're not paying two eighty on it because it's Schedule Two, so it's a high, it's a it's a narcotic, but under Schedule Two, you can actually create a law that says if it's used under these circumstances, you don't have to pay two eighty. The problem is, I just don't see them doing that for cannabis. Right? Right. If they move us to schedule two, they'll just say, oh, my, we rescheduled. But we don't get any benefit of that reschedule. It's a little better than schedule one, but really it's not. So Never. we're all trying to push it to schedule three. Now, what I'm hearing is that the FDA and the, and the uh, HS, the, the health services are for schedule three. I'm hearing DEA is against schedule three. So that's the conflict we have right now, right? You got we need ATF and DA to also be on side with with FDA and HSS to to make a recommendation to the executive branch. But even if we get that, the real question then is: Is Biden going to be prepared to do that? Now, if Biden is running for office, and if he feels he needs the youth vote, maybe they'll do it. Maybe they'll do it. But you know, Biden when he was running the last time said schedule two. And he didn't even do that. So let's see where it comes out. And and to your point, there has been like Biden for his issues. He's fairly anti-cannabis. And with his son's issues, he doesn't want to be seen as a pro-cannabis administration. And my favorite, and I I live in Los Angeles, my favorite stat about Kamala Harris, not that she has any presence, any actual say, is that no elected law enforcement official in the history of America has imprisoned more people of color for cannabis offenses than Kamala Harris as the district attorney for San Francisco and the attorney general for the state of California. I mean, she has put more people of color in prison for cannabis than any single elected law enforcement official in the history of America. And so it's like, okay, you think they have investments from like private prisons? They want to keep people in or is that going too far down the the rabbit hole? I think there's plenty of other crimes in this country right now that you can imprison people on. So, sure, sure. But, and know, and I'd like to hope we I'd like to hope that the prison business I, I'd like to hope that we don't pass laws in order to incarcerate people on purpose for money. I'd yeah. like to hope that that's not what we do. Listen, well, I, but the I, grant I program, now, but there are federal grants. But we're making progress every time we get closer and closer in Congress and 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 I know there's been a lot of fails, but we are getting better. Listen. Here's the good news. The good news is that last year, McConnell's position to Schumer was very clear. He said, I'm not approving this either in the, in the budget or in the NDAA because nobody's gotten to opine 
or comment on this law. You're just giving me this law and telling me I got to accept it. He said, you got to put it through the proper channel. So what did Schumer do this year? Schumer has put it through the proper channels. It is going through committee. And this is what happens when a law goes through committee. This is the kind of thing that happens. There's real debate. And right now, the real problem is, is I think we'll get, to answer your question, Xander, we'll get Sherrod Brown to push this. That's not going to be the issue. The issue right now is, is Reed. Some staffer in Reed's office, that's the senator from Rhode Island, read on Section 10 is a clause in state banking, which has been there for seven years, or however long state banking has been around. And what Section 10 says is that if a state legalizes an industry, you can't deny banking services, right? And someone read that to say, oh, this is the secret way the Republicans are going to get to the service, the gun industry. Okay. And, and, and gambling and prostitution and all the other stuff, right? The, the, the problem is this was a bipartisan agreement without this clause, state banking doesn't work. So it has to be in there. So some staffer comes out of Sherrod Brown's office and says, Senator, they're going to push guns through this. Which was never the goal of this, right? The goal was that if a state, the whole purpose of, of state banking says, if a state, we have a problem in this country right now, that we have states that legalize certain things that the federal government doesn't have legal. And these companies can't get banking services. So Nevada with gambling, New Jersey with gambling, others, right? People are having a hard time, especially with the ESG policies. It seems now the pendulum seems to be switched, flipping the other way, but. You know, now um, Larry Fink doesn't want to say the word ESG, right? He was the biggest proponent of it two years ago and said that we're forcing this on every single company in the country. Now he says we're not even going to talk about that word anymore. So, you know, the pendulum is switching a little bit, but that's the purpose of Section 10. And all of a sudden now Reed is like, well, I don't know. I, can I support this? Because, I mean, literally, it's the Democrats can't get their The Republicans are there. They're like, I mean, if you talk to Danes, he's like, I got 15 votes in the Senate to pass state banking. We're done. Mm -hmm. And the Republicans are sitting there and going, guys, let's get this done. And the Democrats can't get out of their own way. It's, it's the most unbelievable thing. That's why I don't believe in coincidences, right? I believe there's a reason for this. It certainly isn't public polling. It is 100% driven by money, and the money's coming from someone that doesn't want us to get legal. That's it. I texted Shai the other day. I was like, because of, I bet you it's the pharmaceuticals. They, they're in everyone's pockets and they don't want to like let people naturally heal. And, uh, thank you for sharing that. Now, just to want to talk about some, we have a lot of retail investors and probably a lot of people that, uh, do enjoy cannabis that do listen to us as well. You guys just made some news. Uh, I think it was the past month or so. Um, that brick, you guys just launched a new product, right? It was like the fastest yeah. retail product. Love to hear more about that. Yeah, so it's not that it's a surprise to us because we've been working on it for a while, but the acceleration of sales is definitely the most successful retail product we've launched in probably two years. It's a two gram disposable vape pen, uh, which allows you to, you know, get two grams. There's no two gram vape pens in the market. The biggest is one gram. So it's a two gram. It fits right in your hand. It has a really great draw on it. So it doesn't clog and stuff like that. It's really, really good. And it's chargeable and disposable. People were looking for. You know, these smaller vape pens, half gram, one gram, run out really quick. So they got to buy many of them and come back with this. It's priced right. It's, it's disposable and it, it works really well. And so I think we're now up to like 2.7 million in sales in like a week and a half. I mean, it's just, it's incredible launch for us. And it's only being sold, I think, in two states at the moment. We're about to go into 10 states, I think this week, but it was, largely florida and arizona and it's just killing it and so yeah. uh, it's been a really good we just hit the sweet spot of what the customer wanted and uh it's working really well and now well, we're going to add different types of of uh, oils to it um right now we're selling basically a distillate you know botanical pen but we're going to start doing uh we're working on technologies that allow us to do live rosin live resin and other products that can go into that particular vape pen and sell it in the two gram form yeah, I think it's really interesting when it comes down to branding. And I've, I've talked at length with Xander about this because there's so many, right? And like it, it eventually, like you're talking about all these fake brands and all these like illegal shops, people are going to start to get sick and you want to go with the real product ultimately. And then 
does come down to grain, which I find very interesting. So like, is there legal, like with cigarettes, I don't think you can have influencers for alcohol. Is there like laws currently around that with getting out there with celebrities or anyone to kind of endorse these? No, there, there, you know, some state, every state has, this is the other problem, right? Every state has different restrictions. So, I mean, this is also with packaging, right? In like Florida, we're not allowed to have any color in our packaging, right? So we, we have to have different, right? We have to have different information in our packaging in every state, right? Uh-huh. So this creates huge, huge logistical problems for us. But uh, for instance, California doesn't allow it to gram vape. So that's the one state that doesn't allow it to gram vape. And they allow one gram, I think maybe even up to one and a half, but they don't allow it. It's just gram. too good. It's yeah, too it's, good. We couldn't let it here, Boris. It's so, too good. So, but the problem, the issue is, is that the bigger, the, the more grams you put in, we can bring the price down, right? right? We have to fill less cartridges and it's better for the consumer. It's just a better product for the consumer. It brings the price down and allows the consumer to have a better experience. And so we can use, in some states, we're allowed to use influencers. Uh, you know, not big athletes have been hesitant. We've been in conversation with some very big athletes. One is they want a lot, um, and cannabis companies right now can't afford to do that. Yeah. Um, but two is they're also a little bit hesitant, and I get it, right? Because yeah. we want to see this go mainstream. So I think the NBA is probably the first one that has legitimized cannabis use. And so um, I think you'll probably see pretty soon, you'll probably see some some, uh, 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 you know, NBA stars start to, or at least X stars start to endorse these products. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, they want a lot of money for what they do. And cannabis companies right now, given the profitability and 280 and all these things, can't really give a lot as much as traditional businesses can. Yeah. Well, we're not LeBron, but if you want to make a pound in the table strain uh, after, uh, after the podcast, I just want to take, I want to take advantage of just being with Boris kind of one burning question on the front of my mind is if you could make kind of one bold prediction for how our industry looks at the top level, medium level, bottom level, five years from now, how are we made up? How do we look? Boris is not allowed to make predictions anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I, uh, I, I think, I think that it looks a lot more traditional than it looks today. Right. So I think there's going to be consolidation. Um, and so you'll probably end up with, you know, five to maximum 10 global cannabis companies. Uh, and then you'll have very similarly to other industries, you'll have a lot of small craft producers, some that are working on very high end products, some that are working on slightly lower end product, very similar to the beer industry in the way it would develop where you had a lot of these craft players come in, you know, with Sam Adams and people like that, you know, Boston Brewing that started that trend. Um, I think that's what you're going to see in, in cannabis. And I just can't tell you whether it's five years or 10 years because of regulation. I think if we get state banking or descheduling or one of the two, I think that will accelerate the pace of reform. Uh, and the states are going to be pressured to take some of these limits off of how many, comp- how many licenses you can own because they're going to s- start losing jobs soon, right? Because smaller companies aren't going to be able to survive. And if they don't let the big companies take over those assets, they're going to have a problem with jobs and stuff like that. So I think that the states will start to liberalize the, the ownership rules. Cannabis has been treated very differently than any industry I've seen in that, that the social equity impact issue has been much bigger. And there's an absolute paranoia. And we've been kind of a, a, we've been like a, like a test tube for, uh, for, for a new way to approach the business. I, I don't think that works in, 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 in the United States when every other industry is built completely differently. So I don't think you can go in and, and decide that this one's going to function completely different than any other, other one because you're going to get the kind of results we have right now. The industry's going to be under pressure and stress. I do think though that that will alleviate over time. And I do think that we're going to see um, large operators in the United States, there may be four or five, but if you take globally, there may be 10 globally. And then the rest of the companies are going to be smaller, much more focused on individual products. Uh, and eventually get consolidated up. Look what's going on with all the energy drinks and everything, right? They're all getting bought by the big conglomerates. And that's what will eventually happen. So there'll be plenty of room for young entrepreneurs to start businesses and then sell them to the bigger companies. I mean, that's what I've done my whole life, right? I built businesses and then I sold them on to bigger companies. I did that in oil and gas. I did that in data centers. I did that in fintech. In uh, all the different businesses I've built, that's been my modus operandi. I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I don't want to be the guy running a you know hundred billion dollar company. That's not my. That's it. 
not what I know how to do. I know what I know how to do. I know how to build a company, get it in the right position, position it, and eventually consolidate with somebody in the space. And that's what I think will happen with this sector eventually. Boris, thank you so much. I love the uh, radical candor you come with. We usually have to pry it out of our guests, but you came prepared and, and ready. So thank you so much for coming great, on. Great to join you guys. Sliding, she wants sushi, she wants eel sauce for the rice. I just peel off.